This week on BASIC, John Mulaney. Approaching this new show was different in that everyone had been shut down due to the pandemic. Even within that, been doubly shut down. I was in drug rehab two different times, the second time for a couple months, and then I was in a sober living situation. And then a couple months after that, I started working out the hour. I hadn't been on stage in a long time, but I had far more things to draw on than ever before. It wasn't that I set out to immediately cannibalize a really difficult time for me, but there were a lot of interesting stories. I knew it would be really healthy, actually, to be on stage and doing stand-up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season finale of BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and sometimes I lie, you know, like a liar. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I don't know how to tell you all this, but there's a horse in the hospital. <laughs> Jen, our guest today is one of the preeminent stand-up comedians performing out there. He's got a brand new special debuting April 25th on Netflix. John Mulaney is back with John Mulaney, Baby J, which was filmed last year at Boston Symphony Hall. The hilarious special explores Mulaney's recent journey to sobriety. Now, we're going to talk to John about the process of putting together his latest hour, um, his days uh, as a writer at SNL. But he's got kind of a cool cable resume, right? Right, Jen? He does. He's, he's got a lot of basic cable credits and, and premium cable credits that you might not think of when you think of John. So we're going to be talking to him about all of that. So please join us for our conversation with John Mulaney in this very special episode, which happens to also be the third season finale of BASIC. Yeah, so hang in for the episode, and Jen and I will be back after to chop it all up. We are so pleased to welcome to BASIC John Mulaney, one of the world's great stand-up comedians and apparently a BASIC fan. We'll talk about that a little later. But uh, John, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Hey, Jen. Yes, I'm a big basic fan. We're we're so thrilled to have you. So we're we'll, so if you so if you're a fan, John, you know that we start off every show uh, by asking folks. And you're a young man, and I understand uh, cable probably wasn't a, a, a very big deal for you growing up because your 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 folks probably already had it. But do you, do you, what do you remember about the early days of cable television, or your early days? The early days of cable was that it was I was like it was like uh, what I imagine like. Chuck Berry and Elvis records were like, we didn't have it. We did not have it. It was a real, it was a choice not to have it. Ah. It seemed very scandalous, Cable. We were not, I mean, we grew up in the city of Chicago. Like my family's pretty Catholic and traditional, but we weren't living in, we weren't living in a cave, but Cable itself seemed like you're really dancing with the devil. <laughs> what year did you graduate high school? What year? Ninety six. Wow. So you were so not having cable was sort of significant. Then that was like the. Yes, I I had to entice people to come over with all. I had to create a whole other. <laughs> oh, the reason to come hang with you. A whole other reason to hang out with me. Yeah. And is is the lack of cable what drew you? I've read this uh, uh, on your wiki. Is that what drew you to uh, like a fascination with like things like I Love Lucy and the Johnny Carson Tonight shows? And not having cable meant that most of the day I was watching the UHF stations in Chicago. So that was a lot of I Love Lucy, uh, a lot of 
what's happening and what's happening now. A lot of good times. Hey, hey, hey. Like I was, yeah, like I missed those actual runs by a few years on network, but I just watched a lot of Channel 32 and Channel 50 in Chicago and WGN. Just to be clear, you you missed the I Love Lucy run by a by more than a few years, but I know, but I was alive. <laughs> I, I know you don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was alive for what was her last one? Stone Pillow, where she played a homeless woman. Did you ever see that? <laughs> she has like dirt on her face, and Lucy. She, yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know if that was a TV movie or a series, but I, was I think there. it was a movie. It was a movie. Okay, I well, could be we wrong. Were, we are we are in the presence of a TV professional, Jen. Oh, oh yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, I, I do want to add as a side note, and I'm sure this will be cut out, that my husband and I entered our wedding reception to the What's Happening theme. Um, so just putting that out that there. That is great. That's yeah. a fun theme to enter to. It really is. Yeah. So to Doug's point, you know, you it seems like you kind of got interested in comedy at a pretty young age. And I read that you were in like a sketch comedy group when you were a kid. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We um, we predated the Nickelodeon Rugrats cartoon, but we were called the Rugrats. You should sue. This would have been 80, 88, uh, 88, 89. We basically, I think we played like theater games for three weeks and then we put on a show of, we did a sketch show for all the parents. Like two nights, it ran two nights. We each got paid $2. <laughs> this woman pk doyle who ran the theater the children's theater thought every actor should be paid so we each got a two dollar bill on show night and we did like um we did sketches that we did basically like very childlike watered down versions of snl type sketches and i remember one was a it was like a translation sketch where you're watching an italian movie and there's a translator and I just remember the joke was, one joke was someone asks, where did you get those shoes? And then the answer is really long in Italian. Like, <laughs> and then the answer was pennies. And that got a big laugh, you know. How old were you? I would have been six, seven, and eight. That's pretty sophisticated for a kid that age. Oh, I flat out ripped off Dana Carvey's George H.W. Bush, too. We did like a cold opening that was me doing that like you know kind of like dummy lyrics like just just repeating the cadences without much substance it wasn't like a hard take on the gulf war it was just kind of looking <laughs> but you were but you were already watching snl at that tender age yeah yeah i saw snl probably 87 was the first time i saw it i'm we were up we were already up late for some reason and my mom was like oh this show is good you'd like it and i remember she explained to me wasn't just that it was SNL. She explained to me like what a sketch was. She goes, so this show, they're all short. Each thing is short. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> I just thought like, oh, that's wonderful. Cause nothing, I mean, you know, nothing should be long. Right. Short that's that's good parenting. Yeah. She was like, each of these is short. And I was like, great. So I don't have to like I'm not nervous when one starts. Still to this day, I really have an ease <laughs> watching sketch comedy because I know it'll end soon. <laughs> so smash cut from uh, the Rugrats, your Rugrats uh, sketch troupe, to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. So you leave, uh, you leave Chicago, and there you encounter uh, Nick Kroll. Oh, yeah. I met Nick on my, on my fourth day of uh, college. So how did, how did you and Nick meet? Nick, Nick is a, as you may have heard, as it was a previous guest, how did you and Nick meet? 
Oh, I, I know. I heard his. Um, I <laughs> uh, met Nick. He was the director of the uh, Georgetown Players Improv Group. He was a senior and I was a freshman. And I auditioned. My first day of college was my birthday. So this would have been about August 30th. I auditioned. I wasn't going to. A, a, a friend on my floor was like, let's go audition for this. And for some reason, that week, instead of being a comedian, I wanted to be a comedy writer. <laughs> like, I went through phases where I'd be like, I, I want to... I want to write for television or I want to be a comedian. It's I still do go through phases like that. So I was kind of like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not interested in doing theater or performing anymore. And he was like, just come with me. So I went, I got cast and he didn't. And Nick was the director. So Nick was also, you know, funniest. He, he was like a 21 year old Mel Brooks. He was so exciting. So I glommed on to Nick fast and we became really good friends, but he was also the director. He was like, you know. Right. Who's your boss? The boss. Was uh, was, Berbig was Berbiglia in that uh, troupe as well, or he was just at Berbiglia Georgetown? was, yeah. Berbiglia had graduated right before I got to school, but he would still come down to D.C. to do the D.C. Improv, which had been like his home club. So I would see Mike on campus a lot. And he was like... It's crazy to, I mean, I met him within the first couple of weeks. And then I had four years of experiences and it's a wonderful university and, you know, Madeline Albright and George Tenet and all these great people were teaching there. I don't know if George Tenet's a great guy. But... <laughs> <laughs> and yet, like, I kind of could have left after one month. I got everything that I was going to use out of Georgetown <laughs> University. I did not need uh, the School of Foreign Service. I, <laughs> I, was, I was done after meeting Nick. You learned everything you needed to know, like in the first first month you were there. Yeah, and then within like the first summer, I would go up to New York City and see Nick and Mike. And Mike had an apartment, like a one room, like truly a one room apartment. I remember he was he had a bed and he was discussing whether or not to get a chair. And um, <laughs> I was sitting on the floor and he was sitting on his bed and he would be like, a chair would make sense, right? Like, we should have a chair here. And I'd be like, yeah, it could make sense. I could be in the chair now, you know, if we had one. And, <laughs> and then he would go to the cellar and he would go to the comic strip and he would get paid like 25 bucks. And he had always had a lot of cash on him. Very exciting. <laughs> and he had done Letterman and he was getting ready to do his first Comedy Central Presents. Wow, that was, so that'll happen fast for him. Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, he was, well, he was doing so much stand-up during college that, right. a, and he was doing it at a good club like the Improv. So he kind of met a lot of great comics coming through there. Got it. So, but it did happen fast. I mean, it, and and it was one of those things where I think I thought, oh, that's how fast it, it, it happened. happened. Although yeah. I also knew Mike was sort of singular among comedians at that time. One of the things you did, I believe, uh, during one of your summers was you interned for the my co-host, um, or at least in that office. Am, am I correct about that? Not yet your co-host's office at that time. <laughs> okay. 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 So I, I join the Comedy Central story, uh, let's see, June of 2003. So I'm not, I'm 20. I get an internship. Um, because another guy from the Georgetown Improv Group, Conrad Mulcahy, was working at in the development office. He worked 
with Jesse Klein, director of mm, development. The, the great Jesse Klein. The great Jesse Klein. Who I saw last week, actually. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Please tell her I say hi last week. <laughs> <laughs> then Lou Wallach. Sure. Who was, head of, who was head of development in New York for Comedy Central. Head of development in New York. Also saw Lou last week with Jesse. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> there was a whole thing and no one invited me? There was a little event for her, her, new, her, her books out in paperback. Okay. Some boutique had a little event we showed up at. Yeah, it's great to see her. Anyway, anyway, keep going. I'm not offended. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and Lou had an assistant, uh, the great Wendy Spiro, uh, herself a really brilliant writer and performer. That's right. And they needed an intern. They needed one intern for the development department. And this is when Comedy Central New York was at 1775 Broadway. Broadway, yeah. Yeah, 57 in Broadway, the Newsweek building. Yeah. Newsweek building was the Newsweek building, yeah, of course, yeah. Was the Newsweek building. Oh, it's still a building, I guess, but it's been heavily. Yeah. It's still a building, but not the Newsweek building. And uh, I got an internship through Conrad. I go to New York. I sleep on Nick Kroll's couch for the summer. Not for free, mind you. There was, <laughs> I had to pay to do it. And yeah, I remember my first day. It was 2003, but there was no security in that lobby. <laughs> <laughs> walked right up got on the elevator and david brown of like brown and zanuck the film producers oh who was married to helen Gurley brown wow produced jaws he had an office in that building so he walks on the elevator he's like a hundred thousand years old he's on a 90 he's walking on a 90 degree angle and i was like oh my god that's david brown you know and so that was kind of a that was my first of my first day in entertainment that was my first entertainment David person was 100-year-old David Brown. And yeah, I was the only intern for that whole department. So I was Lou's intern. I was Jesse's intern. I was Wendy and Conrad. And this, this, was the, this was like the height of the Chappelle era. This was season one of Chappelle. Yeah, so you were like right there. Yeah. But at that time, Mr. Larry Divney, I believe. That's right. Had the throne. So right. So I came back in May of 2004. Yep. I think you were probably sitting at Lou's desk by then. By then, I graduate college. Wendy Spiro leaves. It's a. It was a really good job to be the <laughs> VP's assistant. And I was unqualified for it, except that Lou knew me. And that it was, the office was kind of like, oh my God, the idea. And I understood like the idea of training someone new was so ludicrous to everyone that they were like, what about the intern from this summer who, you know, we all at least got along with. So I, um, yeah, my first, uh, so may I go back. Right. May I go back and Doug joins us. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So... I would I would sit in the office next to Lou when I came to New York, and I think you would help answer my phones or do whatever. I remember you as I remember you as almost like almost never said a word, super quiet. Uh, yeah, well, I was pretty. I was kind of made your New York desk because Sue right. was in L.A. Right? Yeah, right. That's Sue, wow, good memory, John. <laughs> and she didn't. And 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 you were coming back and forth. I feel like when you were Comedy Central. Sue could cover it once you had Spike TV stuff. Right. You needed an extra set of hands. It just got, it just got a little, <laughs> little busier. But all, all this is to say, in one of your stand-up specials, you talk yeah. about getting the phone call that Chappelle has left for Africa. Oh, not in a special. I think some interviews. Yeah. Oh, some interview did you do that? Okay. Yes. That was, um, what month was that? <sighs> it's all a blood, big, dark black hole for me uh, uh, uh john it's 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 uh i i i want to say it was in the spring or early it was after like i think it was the spring i feel like it was but i could be i could be dead wrong just to give some lead up to this <laughs> i i had a sense that and truly only a sense like it was, it was there was there was some vibe that season three won poppin like they, Things were slow, was what he, I... We, we couldn't get him back for weeks. He had walking pneumonia. We, yes, and, and, and we had canceled the start like twice, I think, of them going yes. back to work, yeah. I remember Lou... And it was funny, because Lou and Jesse had been on the season two finale of Chappelle's show, where he quits, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Lou was dealing with... They had a pretty personal relationship, I just remember at one point, Dave had a manager named Mustafa and 
I, I walked by Lou's office or I was dropping something off in there because he was my main boss, just to read. Yeah. So I was covering Doug's phones poorly and Lou was my main <laughs> boss, right? And I hear Lou on the phone with Mustafa and Mustafa asks, what does in perpetuity mean? <laughs> and, and Lou said, Mustafa, it means forever and ever. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so something's this is, this is an interesting season two conversation to be having. <laughs> so yeah, I recall, I want to say it was Michelle Armour. Who is one of the producers. She was one of the producers. And I feel yeah. like she was like kind of point, the point person for Comedy Central. She, she was the person that would deal with Comedy Central. For sure. Yes, there were many great producers, obviously. Yeah, Neil, of course. Neil, of course. Neil, I met my first day as an intern in 2003. He dropped by the office to meet with Lou. Now we're talking about Neil Brennan, by the way, folks. Also a previous guest. Pre a pre another previous guest. I know, I heard it. Um, <laughs> it's just so right up my alley, this show. So Neil Brennan comes by the office June of 2003 to meet with Lou Wallach to discuss if Neil can direct season two. And Wendy Spiro said, that guy, that's Neil Brennan. And she goes, he seems a little cocky, but he's a really nice guy. <laughs> and I, I, by the way, that still, that still fits. I think say that. Yeah, that fits, yeah. Um, but he's a really wonderful guy. So um, Michelle Armour called one day and it was like, was it the actual Cheech and Chong sketch? Dave's not here. It was like <laughs> Dave's not home. Yeah, I was like, okay, you know, Dave's not there. So yeah. I don't even. I think they were. I think Lou was in a closed door meeting, so I couldn't disturb him. And there were like three calls from Michelle, and production had been very just up and down, stop and start. So the actual call, it's four p.m. Dave was due here at whatever eight a.m. and he's not here. Didn't didn't even to me an assistant raise any didn't register no didn't register i just thought okay and then there were two more calls and then i think she said something like you need to let lou know that it almost sounded legalistic it was like we're now talking about health and safety or something it was <laughs> like this this is like not a good situation and i remember i went in i remember having to say that I was like, Michelle Armour's on the phone again? And uh, <laughs> it went to DEFCON 5 pretty quick. All right, John, what? It was like walking into Lou's <laughs> office, unannounced, not A wonderful, love you dearly, Lou. But it was at that time, what? God damn it, what? <laughs> I go, so Dave's not on set. Um, <laughs> Michelle Armour's called three times. Ah, fuck it. I'll call her back. No, no, no. You know, <laughs> Lou, this is health and safety. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a that's a momentous phone call and a in a moment in time. Our producer actually, while we were talking, uh, googled it was May two thousand five. Uh, so it was the spring. Yep. Yeah. So to so to just to to bring your comedy central. Yes, because Lou walked home that day. I remember we were there at the office till late. A PA had seen Dave go to an ATM. I remember that. That's right. <laughs> that was the only leap. Yeah. And he he did. He t he emptied the ATM and got on a plane. And Lou, I remember it was really late. But Lou, it was warm out, so Lou was going to walk home through Central Park. Right. And he said, what if I, wouldn't it be great if I just ran in today in Central Park? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that would be great. 
<laughs> Nobody ran in a day for a while after that. There's one other thing I don't know if I ever told you about. What's that? Okay, so <laughs> you didn't steal you didn't, you didn't steal money from me like some of my other assistants, did you? Did you have an assistant steal? Money? Oh, I did. That's a that's a story for another day, John. A lot of money, yeah. <laughs> Oh, a lot of money, not just petty cash. Okay, wow. Not just petty cash, yeah. Fair, fair amount. So I, you were coming in and out for Spike, and you were in New York one night. Uh, I never stole from you, by the way, but I did <laughs> use your executive bathroom often. <laughs> and I want you to know we all did. And, and also, there was kind of a, um, there was like a, oh, because I had your calendar now. Okay, right. so. <laughs> Once I had your calendar, I became quite an important person in the office. Do you still? Your Outlook? Yeah, I still yeah, check. You still have access to it? I still have access. Because once I had Doug's calendar, I then knew when Doug would show up in New York. And so Lou, Jess, everyone was like, John, is Doug going to, is Doug like popping in here unannounced tomorrow? <laughs> and I always had to kind of give forewarning to, you know, Tony Fox, everyone within earshot, like, Doug has a 9 a.m. in New York, so he's probably getting in tonight, you know? <laughs> Larry Divney regime had been a little more lax, Jen, in terms of uh, hours and... Uh, oh, okay. And um, was showing up in the office and stuff. So then I was kind of... I had to be like the uh, Paul Revere of Doug is coming. Um, <laughs> but I was working one afternoon. So what you would do is... So I get a call for Doug. He's in town in New York. And you had like a Spike weekly lunch. It was like a thing that we moved. Yes. We would yeah. move it on the regular, though. It wasn't, it was, yeah. I hate to say it was almost unimportant. Um, <laughs> it was some sort of check-in lunch. You do it all the time. Yeah. And uh, I get a call to Doug's phone. And they say, hi, I'm calling from Sherry Redstone's office. <laughs> I was wondering if Doug is free today for lunch with Sherry. And so what you would do as an assistant, if you didn't know who someone is, is as you were, as they were saying who it is, you type their name into Doug's Outlook contacts. So you're like, you'd be like, I think I heard Sherry. Read. I type it in, Doug does not have a contact for whoever this woman is. <laughs> so I go, um, I, I look, I go, oh, plus I don't, the number didn't come up as within it was unknown number within the system right yeah wasn't in the system so i went yeah no he's he's got a lunch today like nah that's not gonna happen sherry i write down like sherry redstone's office you know? and then um and i really it really didn't ring a bell like it really didn't register at all and then i hang up and i was like doing some other you know trying to waste the day and i thought like redstone wait redstone that name means something <laughs> and then i call sue and i go is hey it's the teenager that took over <laughs> doug's desk is sherry redstone someone important she goes what just happened i go well she wanted to go to lunch with doug but i said he can't because he has his weekly spike thing and she's like you need to give me their number right now i was like it was an unknown number and they didn't want to leave a call back so, all right john um, I pre I, I I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate your candor. And I just want to point out that here yeah. we are in 2023. Yeah, Sherry Redstone runs the Viacom now Paramount universe. Yes, probably you know probably one of the uh, most important people in the in the legacy media business, and certainly maybe the most important woman. And I, Doug Herzog, who 
didn't go to lunch with her that day. Mm-hmm. I'm working out of a closet in my house. You have a podcast. You have an outstanding <laughs> <With a> podcast. <laughs> you have an outstanding podcast. Alongside a professional journalist. We'll, we'll let Jen get us back we'll, on track. He's going to actually get to say something at some point. <laughs> yeah, let's get us back on track here, Jen. John, I wanted to ask you about what I think was maybe your first appearance on Basic Cable and maybe even your first appearance on TV when you were on the human giant 24-hour takeover of MTV. Yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, it was It was a... Uh, it was the first time I think you and Nick did George and Gill even, but the, although at the time you weren't called that, I don't think. No, I don't. I, uh, man, that was, that was really fun. That might've been my first time on basic cable or TV in general. Yeah. The 24 hour, was that out of 1515 Broadway? Yeah. 1515. Yeah. That's yeah. where they did it from. Yep. So-called TRL building. Exactly. Yeah. know it. Former office of the state. Yeah, former office working out of fifteen fifteen was a night. Like I would write for the VMAs some years, and like, not not a a nice marquee building, but a pain in the ass to work. Yeah, out of. a lot of security. I'll go through each building's lobby security. As we do. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, that twenty four hour marathon. I, I remember. Let's see. Rob Riggle was there. It was all the Human Giant guys. Just to remind people, Human Giant was like Aziz, right? Paul Shear. And Rob uh, Hubel, yeah. Rob Hubel. But they were doing this 24-hour takeover, and it was just like people were just coming in and out. Like Ted Leo played at one point. Like it was yep. it was kind of crazy. But um, I was watching your segment uh, last night. You you guys drank turkey teenies. Does this ring a bell? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and we weren't called George and Gil. We were just like the oh, hello guys or something. No, they called you Paul's uncles. You were supposed to be Paul Shear's uncles for some reason. Oh, right. Well, we needed a way in. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so you did i think it was a web series for comedy central maybe i love the 30s which was a riff yeah. on i love the 80s which oh, is so yeah. funny <laughs> um you can people can find that on youtube as well or some of the clips from it and then you also appeared on best week ever which was like a few times which was basically like reminiscing about stuff that happened five days ago essentially what was it like doing a real version of that that kind of leaned into the formulas versus you know, a satire of it. Was it kind of surreal to do the real thing? It was like, uh, we were, uh, when we did I Love the 30s, we were satirizing I Love the 80s and those shows of which Best Week Ever became the the weekly. And yeah. we were satirizing it, but at the same time, like chomping at the bit to get on. Like the that was like, you know, FM radio, like getting like getting on one of those VH1 strip shows and one of those like sitting in front of a colored piece of paper uh talking head shows was so coveted Mm -hmm. 600 bucks a pop fantastic (laughs) it was the best a lot of but they they had a lot of funny people they did they had so many funny people yeah and it it really was like i remember like it, it was enough to live off of and you would be on tv and like as a stand up uh best week ever quickly became a thing where, you know, you could put that, you could, I started to headline with that as my credit. Mm. Remember, I went down to the Houston Laugh Stop in 2007, and like, it was off of Best Week Ever. And it was such disposable, cheap television, but, and it was shot in an empty office in the VH1 building at 1633 uh, Broadway. Good security. You you are a stickler (laughs) for the addresses. I love it. Well, I just really want to give her ever my whole universe was these three buildings right. on Broadway. It was like you'd go in there, it was a crowded, empty office with a you know, 
different rolls of paper they'd roll down. They'd go, oh, wait, we have Michael Ian Black over red. So let's have you sitting in front of green, you know, and they pulled out a new color. And you go in on Friday and burn through a bunch of stories. And so so when I when we did I Love the 30s for Comedy Central's broadband station called wow. Motherload. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The broadband <laughs> revolution. <laughs> the amount of meetings you probably had about the obsolete technology of broadband. I, oh, man. Or the title of the of the of the of that uh, particular uh, mother load. Yeah, because oh, MTV was overdrive. That's right. Oh, wow. I remember that. And oh, and Jen, the best decision they made was that the player didn't work on Apple computers. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. No one uses those. Uh, again, working out of my closet. So by 2004, it was not at all a problem. Um, <laughs> the play, you guys had some like exclusive with Windows. It was even at the time I was like, boy, Viacom's a little odd. <laughs> But you, but you were making your way. You're making stuff. You're hanging out uh, right with the uh, on MTV with uh, uh, Aziz and those guys. You're you're doing you're doing stand up, and then you ha- then the SNL era starts. So how did how did you find your way to let me let me uh, introduce it by its address? Thirty Rock, Thirty Rockefeller. Now How's we're the security there, by the way. Security tight as hell. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how you know you're moving up in the world, John. It is, yeah. No more, no more rushing past David Brown without an ID check. <laughs> so that was, you know, it felt like forever. Like leaving in, uh, leaving Comedy Central end of two thousand five to when I got hired at Saturday Night Live in two thousand and eight. That felt like the longest three year period ever. With lot, with lots and lots of moments of. I'm not gonna make. I'm not gonna make it, and it's too late. Uh, it's already 2006. I'm already 24. I don't have my own Human Giant show. Uh, I don't. You know, lots of lots of ups and downs in those three years. And then Nick Kroll and I were writing a movie that's the summer of 2008 for Tracy Morgan, mm. uh, or rather, we were we were trying to. We were pitching the movie around LA. And um, I, I lived in New York, but I was in Los Angeles going around to studios with Tracy and Nick, which is its own podcast. <laughs> and I got a call on a Tuesday that they wanted me to audition for SNL on Thursday, and which, which as much as Saturday Night Live, as largely as it loomed for me and for everyone in comedy, let alone New York comedy, I didn't see it coming at that moment, like, you know, I was sort of like, I was cobbling together best week ever live college shows uh, that we had a little tour from the show. Like I, I had, I had this battle plan for the year that was really exciting. You know, I really was making money as a standup and able to keep my uh, apartment with my roommates and stuff. Did you know that they were kind of scouting you or looking at you or no. was this call completely out of the blue? It was out of the blue. Wow. What I had some I had been on Conan O'Brien late night with Conan O'Brien a couple times. And I had sent we'd sent those to Ayala Cohen at Saturday Night Live. Uh she was in the talent office then as a kind of, you know, hope you like these, maybe someday you'd think about me. But 
I didn't think I was on their radar at all. In fact, I think I'd heard like, no, they have like maybe the summer before sort of like, yeah, this didn't do anything for them. So mm. it really came out of the blue. Uh, I guess what happened was I'd been doing the monologue portion of the ASCAT improv show mm. downtown in UCB. Yep. Uh, and Amy Poehler and Seth Myers would do that Sunday night show. And they were they were very nice and supportive and liked when I did the monologue. So I, I they put in some kind of good word for me. And, and that's what sped that up, I believe. Oh, okay. So what was your audition like? It was stand-up that I was doing at the time. I, I remember thinking to myself, like, if I try to write an audition in two days, that's all new characters, you know, or me trying to learn a bunch of impressions. This is going to be like a, this is just not going to go well. Mm -hmm. And I figured like my standup had like kind of characters and voices in it. So I, I didn't think it was like totally flat presentationally, you know? And I booked like uh, that night, I went and did this show called Comedy Death Ray in LA. And then after that, there was like a 9 p.m. show that Jimmy Dore hosted. I did that. So I, I immediately scheduled a bunch of sets and I ran a five minute portion of, you know, different quick stand up bits. Mm -hmm. And I had no time to overthink it or really overwrite it. Mm -hmm. And what what type of job were you offered? So I auditioned like on the stage, you know, right. like for cast, but they offered me a writing job pure writing no no on camera they were clear about that okay <laughs> i liked writing for other people a lot and it felt like something i was going to keep doing in some way you know and i i there were lots of i mean i knew of lots of comedians who had written for other people it seemed like getting those i remember thinking like having sort of two legs to this table I had two legs to my tripod, stand-up and writing. And I was like, that's that's a little more stable. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited because also I like Conan had been a writer. And I think there was no one I looked up to more than Conan. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like, it just was, it was fantastic. It was just the best news ever. And, and really came out of nowhere, but came out of nowhere for that moment in time, but was the greatest. How was it adjusting to that environment? Because SNL is a, a famously kind of punishing workplace in terms of the hours and, uh, you know, producing a show every week. Did you adjust to that okay? Or I did because it wasn't in reality. Like, sorry, the hours could be punishing and the pressure can be enormous, but I benefited from the lore being so scary mm -hmm. that this is going to be hard and it's going to be unfriendly and it's gonna be competitive, and it's gonna be backstabby, and here's an entire oral history that came out you know, two years before, and look how fucked up it is. <laughs> I remember the day before my, the night before my first day at SNL, I was on the phone with Dan Mintz, the brilliant comedian. Oh, I know him. I was on the set of Veep when they made the finale. I got to know Dan a little bit. Oh yeah, he's the greatest. So yeah. he and I had been writing for Dimitri Martin's show together. He, I said, I don't know, like, I'm really nervous. And he said, well, you know, you'll probably get fired. And <laughs> that's okay, because, like, no one cares who's fired from Letterman or SNL. It's just sort of like, oh, they worked there. And I was like, okay. Like, he kind of, he, he framed it well for me. We're like, you'll get fired, but, like, no one will say John got fired. They'll just say John worked at SNL. So I thought, okay, that's, that's how I'll go in, you know? Like, this is going to be tough, but, you know. 
be, uh, be, I was just prepared for it to, to be, I don't know, unpleasant or something. Mm -hmm. And Seth Meyers and Mike Shoemaker, who now, you know, wonderfully run the late night with Seth Meyers, they had so created a really welcoming, amazing culture there for the writers and cast, but especially for the writers that it was like, it was, it was, I, I made so many lifelong friends and felt really welcomed and really brought into the fold fast. I didn't, nothing felt competitive. It felt like they gave us the, you know, I was 25, Simon Rich was 23, Jost was 26. We were, but we were thrown into the mix. We were assigned things to write. All the writers cross-pollinated and worked together. It was, it was a very cool environment. I mean, is that some of that testament to the way that Seth was yeah. running things? Seth and Shoemaker really created a great vibe. Seth, Seth also was excited that he had, a, I mean, we had a lean writing staff then too. There's like nine writers. So we could oh, all wow. also work at one table uh, mm -hmm. on rewrite day. And you got to know everyone. You know, I got to like, I wrote with Simon Rich a lot. I wrote with Merica Sawyer a lot. But I could also write with like Paul Appel. I could talk to Jim Downey about a sketch he was working on. Like it was really amazing to talk to those writers who'd been there and done so many incredible things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, Seth, so at the, in that place, like your access to information and your access to the show itself and how credit is shared can sometimes be, can sometimes be made really prickly. But Seth wanted everyone to feel like they were a part of it. He wanted everyone to get jokes into the cold open. Mm -hmm. And he always, he always gave credit to all of us too, you know? Well, I was gonna say you, 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 it, I mean, even from the outside, it was pretty well known that you were quickly becoming a major part of the writing staff and a real mainstay there. Well, that was a cool, that was a very kind thing that like Bill Hader did as well was he would say, Oh, this writer, John Mulaney wrote this or th ah. Simon Rich wrote this. He would, I sensed that I was sort of living in that office, you know, 24 hours a day, loved it. I mean, at there was nothing more fun at 25 than to just sleep there and work there all day. It was the, the best. Speaking of, of Bill Hader, do you have a favorite Stefan reference joke that you got in there? Yes. There's so many good ones. But... <laughs> there was one, my favorite was in a Halloween one where he says, he's listing everything. Stefan, for those of you that was a club kid, which was a thing. <laughs> uh, under Mike Bloomberg, there were lots of clubs that would pop up in different spaces because it was very hard to have a, uh, nightclubs were getting shut down a lot. And so there was like a boat in the Hudson River called the frying pan. And there'd suddenly be like a party one night at the frying pan. So, so anyway, <laughs> or just go watch them. I'm not gonna explain anymore what Stefan is like. People know, anyone listening to this knows what Stefan is. Yeah, maybe, but you know, it's been it's been a decade, so. Hey, if you know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> Stefan was listing things from a Halloween club. And he said to Seth, you've heard of uh, Blackula, the black Dracula? And Seth says, yes. And he says, well, we have a Jewish Dracula. And Seth says, what's his name? And Bill, and Bill says, Sidney Applebaum. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> and that entire run was put in. Without Bill seeing it? I put that in at the last second, yeah. Yeah. There was also one Stefan where I kept, 
adding Dan Cortez yes. <laughs> into every run. And, th- and that was an addition that was put on air to entertain Bill. Yeah. yeah. I love those sketches so much. They're great. <laughs> they were really fun. They were really, really fun. I mean, Bill was just incredible. Can I? Can we talk about the Spirit Awards now, Doug? Or do you want to? Sure. Go for it. Okay. Oh, wow. We're going We're going into all the cable stuff, John. I love this period. <laughs> um, so you and Nick hosted that twice. Yeah. And li- seriously, one of my favorite award show jokes of all time is one that you told about Frances McDormand cutting <laughs> in front of her in line as a fun way to commit. A good way to commit suicide would be to cut in front of her in line and go, hey, lady, relax. <laughs> oh, man. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. I'm glad you That's like good. that. Thank you. That's good. I've been to the Spirits before, and it seems like, uh, I mean, I guess every award show is sort of a tough environment, but, you know, it's in this big tent, and people, you know, can get distracted very easily. I'm wondering, A, what was it like to host? And then B, have you guys ever been asked to host, like, the Oscars or, or something else? Because you guys would be great. I'm really glad you liked That's very nice of you to say. What, you, what, when were you, you were, the, what was it like in the audience would be my, was what I Well, I wasn't in the audience when you guys were hosting. I was watching from home. Oh, no, but when you were in the audience. Oh, I was at like the most far flung table imaginable. <laughs> yeah, but every table's far like it it it's it's done in the wide. <laughs> yeah. Your your stage, like the back the back wall from your stage isn't that far away, but the ends are really far away, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, like, it's insane. Like it's it's played it's played five tables deep. Right. Forty wide. Right. That's it. Yeah. And um, and it's a functional awards show. Like people from the furthest tables have to walk all the way up to get their award. I don't, I don't think we all of this kind of came together when we were hosting. I mean, hosting those with Nick was just it was wild. Like we really felt a little insane doing it both times. Like it, it, we'd work ourselves into a state that was I, kind of from doing the Oh Hello show, which was always a little insane very absurd and a little reckless uh that that really played into how we hosted those shows and the greatest thing we learned was when you're in a big room you should have two hosts because then you get twice as many jokes we never paused there was Mm -hmm. never we never held for laughs on anything each of us was going at one right one time or another and I, i remember thinking like Let's go out and demand their attention. We had, we had sort of a, we came out with a sort of like up eyes up here now in our energy because there's no other way to do it. You're corralling an airplane hanger. Right. Literally. <laughs> For real. I mean, it's also, it's on the beach. So right. it's cold. But, and by the way, those, the, your two, your two opening monologues are both on YouTube and are well worth going back. We, we pull them up every once in a while here in the Herzog house. Uh, the kids love them and they are, they, they, they have stood the test of time and they are, they are, it is a joke fest. And I, if you haven't seen them, they're, they're nonstop joke. Go, go check them out. It's, it's all the wall. I do watch them sometimes when I'm feeling sad and they, yeah, they're great. They're really, they're, they're, they're really, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, we're both very proud of those. It was, um, you should be. we also talked to the producer, Joel Gallen and rather than do well, both times we did a song with Andy Samberg, both of which were really fun. But rather than do a bunch of bits throughout the show, we also, we just asked to do, I think something like an eight minute monologue, which is long for an award. I was gonna say they're long. They're long. Yeah. But they're really good. They're long and reckless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're really, really good. Yeah, those are really fun. And no, as far as I know, we have not been asked to host the Oscars. But there's seriously. Well, but that's I'm I'm very flattered. You think we would be? There is something that's like if I could choose any award show to host, I would host the Spirit Awards. Like there's just mm-hmm. something that is fun. It's in the afternoon. The stakes feel totally different. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Us walking, like when you walk into the Oscars, if you're just walking into someone else's house in a weird yeah. way, you know, as far as they knew, it was our tent. at the <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's funny. Speaking of hosting, John, I have a, I, you have to correct me on this. I believe at one point we took, when, uh, when I was still at Comedy Central, you were well into your your tremendous career at this point. So I'm, I'm thinking it's probably around 2014, 15, we came and had a conversation with you, I think about either maybe, maybe we're already thinking, you know, John, I think we already knew John was leaving and we were thinking about next host for The Daily Show, or it might have been to follow John, maybe Colbert had already left. Does this ring a bell? You remember we had dinner with yeah. Becky and uh, Kent, Kent Alterman, and I think we were kind of floating your interest in that. And and you were, you were very lukewarm, as I remember. No, 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 I was not lukewarm. <laughs> I went to a great dinner with Kent Alterman, the wonderful, wonderful Kent Alterman. The great Kent Alterman, yeah. Have you seen Kent Alterman lately, Doug? I have, Yesterday, actually. Maybe? <laughs> As a matter of fact. By the way, I just want to say, John, I've also seen Dan Cortez, but okay. What? What? <laughs> In what context? I hear I hear from Dan. On, uh, I've actually seen him, but we, 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 we go back and forth on the social media. Anyway, back to you and, and uh, The Daily Chef. <laughs> Well, I want to know. I mean, I think I speak for Jen and all the listeners when we'd all rather hear about you and Dan Cortez DMing <laughs> each other. Uh, yeah. Well, ho- hopefully one day we'll be lucky enough to have him right here. Get it, man. Yeah, I I think John Stewart was leaving The Daily Show and there was a, you guys had a conversation with me about it in maybe early 15. That'd be like 15, 16. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It was shortly after the SNL 40th anniversary. And I had had a sitcom on Fox that just, they'd aired all 13, but it was canceled. And and I mean, it, it didn't do good numbers, but at least critics reviled it. So it, <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun time. I came to a taping one night with Becky. Oh, nice. yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, that you're, that's a rare, you're in a rare group there. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Weren't a lot of us. You were there for history, Doug. Yeah. I know you were there for history. Um, we had a nice VIP area for people like Doug. We had drinks yeah. and snacks. And, it was well taken care of. It was all good. Yes. And you could, you could uh, watch the magic from a monitor. <laughs> so I remember going to dinner with Kent. I was extremely flattered that y'all were asking me about it. I sensed they would be big shoes to fill. I I think I also was I, I was I was gun shy from putting myself out there at that moment after the Fox run. And I sensed all eyes would be on whoever came after Mr. Stewart. And but I was also just a little gun shy. And and, and, and it wasn't the right thing at that moment. But I remember saying to Kent. I said, I wish you were asking me this question in five years. Or I said, I wish it was five years from now. And he went, yeah, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, he was, I just remember Kent had a great tone of, I hear you. I'm here to hear out anything you have to say, but it's now and we're asking you about it. And like, you know, we're not, 
we can't talk hypothetically for that long at this dinner, John. But but filled with empathy. Filled with human empathy, Ken's Alterman. Yes, absolutely. Has anyone approached you about being one of the hosts for the week on The Daily Show as they're rotating through? Oh, Is that something you might want to do? Question. Oh, um, I don't know. Now you should be uh, mad they're not, John. What the hell? Yeah, seriously. What? A week? Um, well, it's really only four days, so it's not a four Oh, week. it's only four days? It's yeah. only four days. Okay, well, <laughs> Doug, yeah, Doug. I'll get on that. Yeah, DM, DM. Dan Cortez. DM Dan Cortez, <laughs> who could DM somebody he knows at Comedy Central, and uh, maybe Sherry Redstone will return, Michael. We'll see. We'll get on. <laughs> I, I, Sherry and I are very close now. I ended up going to that lunch. <laughs> You can. I, I'm in the. I'm in the recent books about the Redstone Dynasty as as her lunch companion. So, so John, when our when our when our listeners hear this, your brand new Netflix special will have dropped. Uh, Jen and I have both had the opportunity to see it. To see it. Oh, you yeah? uh, And I saw I saw you live last summer. My husband and I. So I had already kind of seen it, but now I've seen the. the oh, Jen, where'd you come see the show? Uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland. Very nice. Yes. Hot night. Humid. <laughs> I think I I think I went jacketless. Oh, I think you oh. might have. Yeah. But it was great. Before we get to the before we get to the special, by the way, congratulations. It's brilliant. Brilliantly shot. It's and you're brilliant as always. Um, but you know, one of the things that, that struck me, first of all, you are wearing a beautiful suit, John. Hey, thank you. And and nobody wears a suit outside of maybe James Bond, like you do. It's James Bond, Steve Harvey, and then myself. That's the current <laughs> list. I don't make the list. I'm just, I'm happy to be on. So we'll get into the special in a second, but I just want to ask you, how often do you wear a suit when you're not on stage? I try to. I try to for things like when Olivia and I go out to dinner or uh, any time. Okay, here's what I try to coordinate. My son is 16 months old. He's very observant. He's come back. He was on tour with us a lot. So he, uh -huh. but he was always going to bed before my shows. And it was important to me to have him see me in a suit um, because he was already, hi, he's at the window. He was already, <laughs> um, he was already very uh, aware of what uh, his father was doing and how he was dressing. And so I have tried to pass through the house in a suit uh, because I was always very impressed by my dad coming home in one. So mm -hmm. even though Malcolm's asleep after my shows, um, whenever possible, I try to have one on in the afternoon if it's if it makes sense for that day's events. If I can ask a Malcolm-related question that relates to your special, you do a, a couple of jokes related to your son, but you've always kind of pulled from your personal life in your stand-up. And now that you have a child is your calculus about that changing at all? Like how often you oh. want to mention him and things like that? Is my calculus changing? It's a, uh, that's an interesting question. You know, he can't, he, he can't really give his okay to jokes about him. Right. And I'm, I'm aware of that. <laughs> you know what it is? I hesitate to say this because I'm a working comedian and I want to sound like I can be really prolific, but I, I can't say it's such a straightforward relationship. <laughs> I can't, I don't have that many takes on it. You know, like okay. I'm his dada and he's my son and he's my favorite thing in the world and all sorts of other things that aren't that comedic. Mm -hmm. Right. 
it's more satisfying than anything I've ever done in my life. Being able to put him down for an app is like more satisfying than anything else. It's very straightforward and saccharine. So I don't, I don't know what to say about it. You know, well, as he gets older, you're going to have plenty to say. I have a feeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, yeah. and then he, and then he'll withhold permission, you know, unless I get him a right. car. Uh, he'll let me do an hour about him. Coming into the special, and it's no, you know, this is not a secret to the audience or to anybody who's seen you, you know, uh, perform your set that, that uh, they might see on Netflix. Um, you've had a pretty interesting uh, personal life over the last couple of years. So just coming into the special, did did you did you approach it any differently than you had previously? Or was it just like, hey, I'm ready to get back to work and I'm going to do this the same way I've always been doing it? It wasn't exactly, approaching this new show was different in that everyone had been shut down due to the pandemic. Right. And I had, even within that, been doubly shut down because I was getting, uh, I was in drug rehab two different times, the second time uh, for a couple months. And then I was in a sober living situation. And, and then I started, and then a couple months after that, I started working out the hour at this place, City Winery um, mm -hmm. in New York City. It was a strange thing where I hadn't been on stage in a long time, but I had far more things to draw on than ever before. It wasn't that I set out to immediately cannibalize a really difficult time for me, but there were a lot of interesting stories and I was, I knew it would be really healthy actually to be on stage and doing stand-up. So it all lined up where the material was kind of there, uh, needed to be worked on for a couple of years, but a lot had happened. I did find it really, it was, it, it built my self-esteem up to talk about it. Right. So, you know, I, I started to get some self-respect and, and clarity and, and being productive really made me feel good. So it was, it was that plus a lot of interesting things, some of which had become public. And so there was maybe to, to my fans, some expectations about what I'd be talking about. Uh, the, in terms of the special, uh, what I approached differently about it was, you know, th this tells the story of a wild self-inflicted crisis I went through. I was far less surgical with editing out material. This is kind of the one time to tell this whole story of what, oh. what a big intervention, what drug treatment, what drug recovery is like. And so there's, there's a little more in it than previous specials. I didn't look at it as, you know, at 59.9 minutes, this has to wrap up in a certain way. Got it. And I'm a lot prouder of it. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's, it you should be. It's, it's great, by the way. And it, and it's it, not only, you know, you share so much and in such a, a funny, insightful way, but it's also beautiful. It's beautifully shot. I've, I can't believe I've never been to the Boston, uh, the, the Boston Symphony before. What a beautiful venue. It's, mm -hmm. it just everything is great. And David Byrne. It's a really beautiful venue. David Byrne provided us with some beautiful music. Uh, Scott Pask is an amazing production designer. He added, he he built a set that, you know, makes the room look even more amazing and and timbers directed it beautifully so i i i think people can really enjoy it on a lot of levels super cool we're very proud of it yeah we've kept you so long we really appreciate you being so generous with your time i, I mean i came to you <laughs> <laughs> so uh you may be familiar with our traditional last question which is 
what is your favorite basic cable show of all time that isn't something that you've worked on? Okay. I thought a lot about this. Great. You know, there's a lot of comedic ones uh, that were influential. The state. Uh, watching the show Stella get developed, which I was an assistant for. Watch and Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I was such a fan of Michael, Michael and David that like watching that come together was really formative for me. But I gotta say, VH1 behind the music. Ooh, nope. excellent choice. Excellent choice. I, I don't think I'd ever. I, I don't think there's a show. I, I think the answer to the question, "What do you want to watch every night of my life?" is actually VH1 behind the music. <laughs> and there's no, there's no other. The pace, the the B roll. The, the, the footage they would reuse because they didn't have access to a lot. The whole vibe of it was so... I could watch VH1 Behind the Music about any artist and didn't have to be a fan. Uh, the, be the best ones always, I think I might have said this on the show before, are always the ones with bands that have brothers in them. Because oh. brothers will say anything about each other with no fear of retribution. Oh my god! Versus bandmates who are who are always hoping to reform or get the band back together. So like the Kinks or Oasis or you know the Black Crows. You know Bill Hader and I and Jimmy Kimmel. I can't remember how we got on this circuit, but we send each other lots of YouTube interviews between Alex and Eddie Van Halen. It's <laughs> it's one of the most it, Alex and Eddie is. A pure character study. And then when, when they are talking about David Lee Roth, it's with it's with such, I mean, they were Van Halen, but they talk about each other with such supreme annoyance. They're like little kids on a road trip. They're like little kids on a family car trip. That's hilarious. <laughs> what was the first behind the music you saw? Did you watch it from the very beginning? I don't remember because like I never caught the premiere at night. I did. I remember. I was like the Millie Vanilli one was the first one, I think. Millie Vanilli, that was the first one. That That's a great. That was the first one? Yeah. I mean, Motley Crue is, I mean, Motley Crue is pretty fantastic. Oh, sure. You know, the, the Buddy Holly one is interesting because they have these interviews with Gary Busey where he talks about. Wait, there's a Buddy Holly behind the music, really? Yeah, or maybe it's about the plane crash. Got it. Got oh, it. yeah, it might be that. And uh, Gary Busey has this long interview about when he heard the news that the plane had crashed. And then later they go back to him when he heard the news that he got cast in the Buddy Holly story. And he does the same. He goes, I heard on the radio, they're playing a crash. And I went, ah. and he sort of freezes for like 10 straight seconds. And then he has the same reaction when he gets cast in the movie. Anyway, <laughs> a small slice of a wonderful program. Well, they brought it back, you know. What, oh, behind the music? Yeah, yeah. They made new episodes um, that are on Paramount Plus, some of which are like kind of building on old ones. I've only watched one. Guess who it was about? Duran Duran. It was a Duran Duran one, yeah. But but they have other ones too. Jen's a, Jen's a Duran Duran super fan. Okay. I'm going to watch that. Go. It's on Paramount Plus. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. I guess I got to download that now. There you go. <laughs> John Mullaney, thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate it. We're big fans. Um, and uh, the fact that uh, you wanted to be here means an awful lot to us. We really, uh, Jen, we really appreciate Doug, it. I, I thank you for answering my email. <laughs> to do basic sometime and to help me promote the special. And it was great to talk to both of you. Thank you so much. So that was the great John Mulaney. Heck, he was so charming. And he, and he wanted to be here, Jen. I don't know, I don't know if our, our fans uh, or our listeners, I don't know if we have fans, but I know we have listeners, but I don't know if they picked that up, but you know, uh, he actually is the very first big star 
to kind of approach us and say, hey, I'd like to be on your show. So that was kind I of can't. Cool. I, I still don't believe it's real. I, I still believe he <laughs> listens to the episodes. I, I believe him, but it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around. Yeah. He's had such a, you know, we, we heard a lot about his career, which was which was really interesting, but he's had really such an interesting career, you know, sort of going forth between writing and uh, and, you know, performing. And I don't know, I, I just, you know, and we didn't really get to drill down too far. But uh, I, I wanted to sort of hear a little bit more about, like, you know, being a writer on Saturday Night Live for a guy who's best known as a performer. Um, you know, just wondering with, what, what that was like. You know, he got a, You know, he was on the air a little bit in certain sketches and, and certain bits, but he was he was mostly a writer, right? He was. But, he, you know, he had also been writing, as he talked about, for for other things before. So it's not like writing was new to him. And I would imagine not that I'll ever be on Saturday Night Live, but it might be a little more comfortable to start out being a writer and, and not having to be on camera just to kind of get a feel for the place first. But I think he's, I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, and, and you can see that in the standup special for sure. And a, and a brilliant standup. And I think he's really, you know, you know, kind of one of the, one of the top guys um, out there right now. And, uh, and given actually, honestly, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the special yet, you know, given, you know, all the news and swirl surrounding, you know, him over the last couple of years, I think it really, I think the special really holds up. I think I thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's funny cause we, we think about John Mulaney as a standup. We think about his work on Saturday night live, but you know, he really has done a lot of stuff in cable, you know, starting out some of the shows we talked about. We didn't talk about Documentary Now, right. um, which is another great show that that he has worked on some episodes for. So he he has a pretty substantial resume. And, and, and a real student of television, clearly. I mean, going yeah. all the way back to when he was a kid without cable, you know, watching things like, you know, I Love Lucy and, and old Tonight shows. And, you know, and then you just heard him, you know, talk uh, later in, in, in the in the pod about, you know, some more obscure cable shows like, you know, Stella and uh, Michael and Michael and, and those things. I mean, he just really loves the forum. He loves TV. He loves comedy. And, you know, it sounds like he's a fan himself. And I love the fact that his mom you know, had him watching SNL at, at six because I was like that too. I'm, I'm a little older than John, but my parents would wake me up at like 1245, like Mr. Bill's on. And oh, I would really? get back out of bed to go watch Mr. Bill. Well, as you said, that's, that's, that's just good. That's just good parenting. I think it's good parenting. <laughs> um, you know, and then I really started watching it when Eddie Murphy was on and I was very young. I was like elementary school and I got to stay up and watch it. Cause. And, and by the way, if you didn't stay up and watch it, you did not see it. Right. That's correct. Although we did have a VCR. I did record the Drew Barrymore episode um, so I could watch it and rewatch it. But yeah, certainly uh, in the 70s when it started, you had no way to preserve it. That's why my parents had to wake me up for Mr. Bill. (laughs) That's right. Maybe we'll edit this, but uh, this is our uh, season finale. Which we should let our uh, which we should let our listeners know, and uh, I just want to say on behalf of myself and Jen, we're taking a little hiatus here, but uh, we have certainly enjoyed all of this and bringing the show to you each week. We we hope you have too. I think you feel probably the same, Jen, right? I absolutely. It's been so much fun uh, this season and the previous two seasons, and I feel like you know we're we're taking a hiatus at a moment when we've learned that John Mulaney is a listener, and like, how can you go out? On a possibly higher note, I don't think it's. I don't think you can. That's right. Well, we'll we'll uh, watch this space, and uh, you know, we'll let you know uh, what happens with uh, with basic going forward. But that being said, uh, want to thank everybody um, at Pantheon, uh, Christian and Peter, um, Lindley, 
uh, Brian, Zach, uh, the whole team uh, here at Basic. Um, it's been great. We, of course, appreciate all of you uh, for joining us each week and listening. And uh, we want to thank everybody who uh, came by uh, and joined us on the podcast. Of course, uh, John Mulaney, who asked to be here today. So uh, with that, we'll uh, bid you a farewell and uh, we'll see you when, you when we see you. Right, Jen? We will. Thank you so much, everybody. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.